Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 126. We'll begin with a brief summary of Ezekiel chapters 24 through 27 and follow with some thoughts about all the things we do that make us human. As Ezekiel sits in Babylonia receiving the word of God, 1,270 kilometers away, King Nebuchadnezzar is laying siege to Jerusalem. And so God tells him to deliver an allegory to the, quote, rebellious breed. But the allegory brings us back into the kitchen for some down-home cooking. You know how come the chicken crossed the road, huh? Uh, ready to run away from them Cajuns. I'll tell you right now, because Cajuns will eat most anything, and they love to cook chicken. This dish doesn't include chicken, but the best cuts of cow, thigh, and shoulders taken from the best of the herd, boiling briskly in the pot. But before you get all hungry and ready to eat, quote, Woe to the city of blood, a cauldron whose scum is in it, whose scum has not been cleaned out. Empty it piece by piece. No lot has fallen upon it. Mm-mm. But even if you leave it on the coals until the copper pot glows red, quote, It has frustrated all effort. Its thick scum will not leave it into the fire with its scum. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Because it's allegory time. Get it? No matter how much the Jews try, God knows that they're just fronting. They're, they're not sincere. And God will punish them accordingly. The Jews of Babylonia will hear the news from a lone survivor who flees the destruction. And with the temple destroyed, the Jews of Judah will also be sent into exile. The prophecies have come to pass. And this ushers in a new phase, not only for the Jewish people who will languish in exile, but Yechezkel himself now has to redirect his efforts from trying to forestall disaster to preparing the people for what comes next. A preview of which involves God telling Yechezkel that he's going to kill Yechezkel's wife. Now you take my wife, please. <laughs> Except Yechezkel doesn't find that funny. In fact, God tells him he can't even mourn for her outwardly. He can't even sit the requisite seven days of Shiva because God sends him to the people. And they ask him why he isn't doing the mourning thing. And he tells them, quote, I am going to desecrate my sanctuary, your pride and glory, the delight of your eyes and the desire of your heart, and the sons and daughters you have left behind shall fall by the sword. Yeesh. Chapter 25 moves on to offer some choice thoughts about the Ammonites who enjoyed Judah's downfall a bit too much. They too will suffer at the hands of the Babylonians, who according to the prophecy will come and eat their lunch. Literally. And the same fate will befall the Moabites and Edomites, as well as the Philistines and the Karatites. <laughs> in chapter 26, the hits keep on coming. The city of Tyre, which is in present-day Lebanon, will burn because they cheered while Jerusalem fell. Quote, I will put an end to the murmur of your songs, and the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. The coastal cities will also be overturned and destroyed. <laughs> And in case you weren't convinced that bad things will happen to these bad people, chapter 27 reproduces Yechezkel's dirge over Tyre and how, though perfect in beauty, the city will end and end badly. Quote, and all the oarsmen and mariners, all the pilots of the sea, shall come down from their ships and stand on the ground. They shall raise their voices over you and cry out bitterly. They shall cast dust on their heads and strew ashes on themselves. 
On your account they shall make bald patches on their heads and shall gird themselves with sackcloth. They shall weep over you, broken-hearted, with bitter lamenting. They shall intone a dirge over you as they wail, and lament for you thus. Who was like Tyre when she was silenced in the midst of the sea? And on that elegiac note, here endeth the lesson. For a prophet of Israel, Yechezkel has some choice words for the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, the non-believers. And not all of them are vicious. In this episode, we find a curious example of empathy for the other, a lengthy dirge for the city of Tyre after they fall prey to the destructive power of Babylon. But what's even more curious is that it's delivered not from the Jewish perspective, but from the point of view of Tyre's neighbors and allies. And how these fellow seafarers mark Tyre's fall is also kind of curious, because the language Yechezkel uses, as well as the rites of mourning he describes in chapters 26 and 27, strongly echo language and description of funerary rites found in Canaanite literature written in the Ugaritic language. There are six parts that appear there, as well as here, to the rites. First, the mourner descends from his chair to second rest on the ground. There, third, the mourner places ash or dirt on his head. Fourth, the mourner modifies their clothing in some way, maybe, you know, removing their finery and, and wearing sackcloth. Fifth, the mourner shaves a spot on his head, and then the Ugaritic also his cheeks and chin. And finally, sixth, the mourner recites a dirge to mourn the dead. Burial rites and disposing of the dead has always had a special place in practically every human culture. Going back to Paleolithic times, we have found evidence of ritual burial of the dead. One could say that burying our dead is a civilizing rite. It's a mark of civilization. It's probably the one thing that all cultures value in common, which might account for one of the oddest moments in modern European history, the Christmas Truce of 1914. The Great War officially started on July 28, 1914. And I could go into the, you know, the root causes and the, the, all the gory details about how every European power found itself dragged into a pointless bloodbath, but I'll leave that for smarter podcasts, namely Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, particularly episode 50, entitled Blueprint for Armageddon. I'll put up a link uh, to his podcast at thenextjew.com. Be forewarned, it requires commitment, but it's very worth it. Anywho, when the war started, millions of servicemen, reservists, and volunteers from across the continent joined up in a wave of nationalist fervor, such excitement and celebration, to fight for king and country. Hitler was in Munich when Germany entered the war, and he recalled the enthusiasm and the feeling of everyone rising up to strive together in common cause. Volksgemeinschaft, you know, this feeling of community, you know, that would break down elitism and unite the people across classes, you know, that kind of motivated Hitler later on in life, and we know how that turned out. However, it became clear as the months wore on that the Great War was not going to be a great party. Armies were equipped with repeating rifles, machine guns, and artillery, and, and they killed each other in vast numbers, tens of thousands. 
you know, were cut down within weeks. And normally that's the amount of people that would, you would lose in, in the whole war. And here they were losing it in, in, the, in the first days and weeks. The Western Front, you know, snaked its way from the Swiss border to the sand dunes just beyond Newport in Belgium. And it seemed that trenches would be the best way to manage the carnage and blunt the enemy's attacks. The thing is, these trenches were often dug in haste. They had little to no drainage. You know, men were standing knee-deep in freezing mud. But worst of all, the, you know, the way this was set up, it made it nearly impossible to bury the dead that were, in some cases, you know, barely five meters away. That the war denied these men the chance to properly mourn their friends, you know, or put on sackcloth or compose dirges was understandable. You know, there was a war to fight. But, but the stench of the decaying bodies, you know, was unbearable. Yeah, okay, it's unbearable, that's war. But, you know, leaving them out there, their friends, their comrades, unburied, that was just wrong. And it went against the grain, the deep grain of human civilization. So perhaps the need to bury the dead, to mourn friends and comrades, even for a minute, brought about a moment of humanity amidst this carnage and barbarity. The British Expeditionary Force was manning a stretch of the line running south from the Ypres salient in France for 43 kilometers to the La Basse Canal. Along the British section of the Western Front, the enemy was sometimes no more than, you know, 65 meters away, 35 meters away, 25 meters away. Both sides could easily shout greetings or insults to one another, and importantly, sometimes come to spontaneous agreements not to fire on each other for various reasons. Now, keep in mind a number of things about this particular war, which I guess is weird for us to think about or just, I don't know, old-timey. First, folks on both sides were fed a steady diet of jingoistic propaganda to get men to volunteer and, you know, it would just gin up support for, for their side. No one had anything measured or nice to say or think about the enemy. They were evil incarnate. They were the Huns, you know, they were savages, murderers, rapists, baby killers. Also, on top of this, average people in different countries had very little contact with each other, so it made the demonization even easier. But there was also a little curiosity, too. You know, were the Huns, the Germans, as bad as the papers said? Hmm, you know. And second, the war, you know, wasn't being fought in some, you know, godforsaken place tens of thousands of kilometers away. You know, while the soldiers were sitting in their trenches, in some cases, they could see you know, vestiges of civilization, you know, the air quotes, civilization all around them, you know, towns and villages nearby. And if you were British, you were really only a couple of days removed from home. You were probably still getting the times, even though it was a couple of days late, but still you were getting the times, you know, fresh off the presses. Well, not so fresh, but you know what I mean. Third, no one thought that the war was going to schlep out for as long as it did. So as Christmas time approached, it was a matter of national pride and priority to bring as much Christmas cheer and, 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 and you know, gifts to the troops on the front lines as feasibly possible. Parcels and gifts flooded in, especially those care of the state. British Tommies received plum puddings and Princess Mary boxes. It was a metal case engraved with an outline of George V's daughter, and it was filled with chocolates and butterscotch, cigarettes and tobacco, and a picture card of the princess herself. George V also sent greetings to the troops, quote, May God protect you and bring you safe home. The Germans, Fritz, the Huns, they received a present from the Kaiser as well. The Kaiserliche, a large Meerschaum pipe for the troops and a box of cigars for NCOs and officers. 
Cities, towns, and villages and numerous support associations on both sides also flooded the front with gifts of food, warm clothes, and letters of thanks. This would not be the case for Christmas 1915 or 1916, but, you know, the war is still fresh. So many possibilities. Uh, and with morale boosted and bellies full, fuller than normal, and with a lot of Christmas booty still on hand, the season of goodwill, you know, spread through both the British and German lines. So on December 24th, when the rain finally gave way to clear skies, you know, moods were elevated. And along many parts of the line, German soldiers, you know, placed miniature Christmas trees, the Tannenbaums, in clear sight of the British. They had little lit candles on them. And they, and they were singing Christmas songs at the top of their lungs, and sometimes the British would join in, you know, with the English versions, or they'd sing louder. British High Command, which was headquartered in a chateau 40 kilometers behind the lines, were receiving all these reports of quote-unquote fraternization, and strict orders were issued against such behavior. However, several high-ranking officers closer to the front took a, shall we say, more relaxed view of the situation. They saw the potential for a truce as an opportunity to strengthen the trenches and restock supplies. But, you know, on many parts of the line, both sides saw the potential or possible truce as an opportunity to get into no man's land and seek out the bodies of their compatriots in order to give them a proper burial. And once bodies were recovered and buried with solemnity and the rites traditionally afforded to the dead, the opponents would inevitably start talking to each other. Men openly exchanged gifts and buttons. In one or two places, soldiers who had been barbers in civilian times even gave free haircuts. One German, who had been a juggler and a showman before the war, decided to perform his routine in the middle of no man's land. In his famous account of the truce, Captain Sir Edward Hulse of the Scots Guard remembered the approach of four unarmed Germans at 8.30 a.m., he went out to meet them, accompanied by one of his ensigns. Quote, Their spokesman started off by saying that he thought it only right to come over and wish us a happy Christmas, and trusted us implicitly to keep the truce. He came from Suffolk, where he had left his best girl and a three-and-a-half horsepower motorbike. Hulse also wrote that, quote, Scots and Huns were fraternizing in the most genuine possible manner. Every sort of souvenir was exchanged, addresses given and received, photos of families shown, etc. One of our fellows offered a German a cigarette. The German said, Virginian? Our fellow said, aye, straight cut. The German said, no thank, I only spoke Turkish. It gave us all a good laugh. You see, because the British were supported by the Americans and the Germans were supported by the Turks. Anyway, when the truce was at its height... There were even a number of football games reported, although these are really just kind of informal kickabouts rather than, you know, structured matches. On January 1st, 1915, the Times published a letter from a major in the medical corps reporting that in his sector, the British played a game against the Germans and were beaten 3-2. to two. Kurt Zemisch of the 134th Saxons recorded in his diary, quote, The English brought a football from the trenches, and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas, the celebration of love, managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. Captain J.C. Dunn, a medical officer in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, whose unit had fraternized and received two barrels of beer from some Saxon troops opposite, recorded how hostilities restarted on his section. Dunn wrote, quote, at 8.30, I fired three shots in the air and put up a flag with Merry Christmas on it, and I climbed on the parapet. He, the German, put up a sheet with Thank You on it, and the German captain appeared on the parapet. We both bowed and saluted and got down into our respective trenches, and he fired two shots in the air, and the war was on again. 
What's truly astounding about this moment to me is how civilized it all is. You know, the fighting, or more like the necessity for fighting, was packaged in the language of God and country and glory and honor and masculinity. Civilized nations convinced their young men to go off and fight and die in the mud over 10 meters of no man's land. And all that civility and civilization papered over the savagery of mass murder. So the folks at home and the folks in the front wouldn't be confronted with what it is they were actually doing, killing each other for what amounted to really nothing. And when these men looked at each other, for a minute they saw the humanity in each other, for no other reason than to acknowledge that they wanted to recover their dead and honor them with a proper burial. And when the burials were done, they could share some of their care packages, some shiny buttons, some cigars, and perhaps kick a football around for a little while before firing two shots in the air and declaring, and resume killing each other over the next four years by the millions. Yechezkel didn't have an overly idealistic view of war. There was nothing civilized about what Babylonia was doing in Jerusalem, or to Moab, or to Edom, or to Ammon, or to Tyre. Nothing honorable or heroic. It was a tragedy of biblical proportions. And even so, he was able to project himself into the place of someone outside the conflict who could see it for what it was, devastating and terrible. And he identified the urge, which in essence defines us as humans. And that was the only thing he could speak of in approving terms and wax poetic about, the dignity of burying and mourning the dead properly, a final gesture of what's good about humans when everything that led up to it was arguably the worst. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 127 when we continue in the book of Ezekiel with chapters 28 through 31.